Hey, Peter. Hey, Adam. Why am I always late on the latency? <laughs> well, you can't spell latency without L-A-T-E and then some other letters That's true. as well. That's true, actually. Yes. I'm Adam Manis. And I'm Peter Martin. And you're listening to the You'll Hear It podcast. Daily music advice coming at you. Coming at you today, we're doing our live Q&A on Instagram. What's up, Instagram? What's uh, up, IG? If you're listening to this podcast... to on that? Uh, it just doesn't work. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast later in the week, please know that for the next few Saturdays at least, we're going to be live on Instagram, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Come for your Q&A. We, Peter, we already got a bunch of good questions in here right now. I know, I know. I want to jump right on them. Can we, should we do that? Should Let's we jump it. on in there? Should we... Is, is the water fine? Are there sharks? Yeah, there's there some really trolls? hard hitting musical and piano questions like, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Really? Is that on there? That's I didn't see on that. there, yeah. Okay. You know what? I, uh, should we tackle that one? Or, uh, oh yeah, what, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? So I love my favorite all time. It's not even ice cream. It's frozen custard, Ted Drew's Oreo concrete. Oh, that's a good one. You know what? Back in my, back in my, um, my milk and dairy consuming days. I love that one. I, I loved all the concretes. That's a famous St. Louis thing. But now, you know, you would think, ha ha ha, you're plant based, Peter. You don't get to have any fun with ice cream. Au contraire, my frere, as they would say in France, mm. because there's some beautiful um, plant based alternative ice creams. Coconut milk. I don't know if you know about that. Coconuts are not just used as bowling balls in the South Pacific, they're actually used to create uh plant-based milk so yeah we're getting i don't know what brand it is but a coconut milk like uh cookie dough oh man it's great it's happening yep yeah sounds sounds <laughs> happening You're like yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> i'll stick with my concrete thanks got it got it all right i saw a question here about um that was really interesting i don't know how much maybe between us we can come up with it this is from Nice chord official. That's a good name there. How do you go about practicing 16th note lines? Are there are they anything different from 8th note lines? And so I'd like to give this one a try. I think, you know, from the standpoint of if you go in half time, there is no difference. A 16th note line or, or a half as much as the tempo is an 8th note line. It's the same. But normally we're thinking about these things, an 8th note line, a 16th note you know, within the same time. So like if we're here, a one, two, three, four, ba do do ba do ba 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 di ba that's an eighth note line, whereas the sixteenth note line would be stupid and dead bop boop ba ba do ba do dead bop. So the way I think about it is that the urgency of you know the kind of swing feel that holds together those lines is already naturally heightened in the 16th notes line as opposed to the eighth notes. So you don't have to work as hard um, for that kind of part of the dramatic flair of the groove. But the reality of like how you use 16th note lines usually uh, or oftentimes is, is about going in and out of eighth note lines. So it's not just, okay, yeah, you can go into a double time feel and then that's just is its own thing. You know, the rhythm section maybe goes with you, maybe doesn't. But if you think about the, the, 
transition from eighth notes to 16th notes. And one way I like to practice it and encourage people to practice it is to use the six, the eighth note triplets as kind of a bridge between the eighth note and the 16th notes to give it more of a natural thing and to not make it just a straight double time. So then you can incorporate them both into the same line. So it might be like one, two, three, four. You know, so you've got eight. I started there. I was kind of corny, but it's practicing. You no, know it's, it's an exercise. So you're starting yeah. with the uh, eighth note that I went to an eighth note triplet part of the line, and then to the 16th notes. So I, I love thinking about even if you feel like it's too much for you to handle, simplify it even more than that and do it like what I'm doing. Sing it because a lot of times we can sing stuff and understand it and comprehend it and pull it in before we can actually play it on our instruments. That's so true. I, I've had teachers give really good advice to things like, um, you know, you can practice fast lines like do da 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 And if you're practicing them as eighth notes, it's actually much harder than if you were to think about it in half time. And we tend to be freer when we're thinking about those big movements. So that could be one right. way to think about what's the difference between practicing 16th notes and 8th notes is really think about the speed of the individual duration. So if it's da 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 it might be easier to work on the line to think about it as a sort of bigger two, a halftime. As opposed to da 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 I even do this if, if I'm going to play Cherokee. I'm not thinking like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, what? You know what I mean? I'm thinking like, uh, yeah. uh. Uh, 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 don't go, don't, don't. And that way those subdivisions line up in a much more relaxed way. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I think that in general, this kind of, you know, 16th notes, if you're a slow tempo or playing fast tempos, you know, the, the further, the, the great thing about developing really solid time, practicing with the metronome, practicing with recordings, really concentrating on your time is that you'll get to the point where you can feel the primary beat like what you were just doing further and further away so if you think about cherokee right bang you know and even further than that um but still keep the confidence of the groove within that then you'll be able to more naturally more relaxed play the lines no matter what tempo you're playing at it's awesome um, so we have another one here, uh, ideas for practicing comping inner voice melodies. So I'm actually mm. going to take you over here. I'm set up here because I've been recording this course and I think Hello. you'll be able to hear this on Instagram. But one of the first things you can do to get some inner voice moving movement going is, is realize you have this middle hand, right? You have the outside of your hand, which can be either the bass line in your left hand or the melody in your right. And then you have these inner two, your thumb, first finger, maybe your third. One of the first movements you can practice is whatever chord you're in. Let's say we're playing like a C minor seven here, right? Can you see that? I'm gonna go like kind of cross-handed, right? I got, I got like a D, E flat, B flat. Or maybe it's just this, right? C, E flat, B flat. Let's pretend like I have like a G and an F in my left hand and I'm, and I'm doing some comping. One of the first melodic devices we can move is any of these notes either up a, um, either up a, a diatonic tone. So here, if we're in C Dorian, I can move that C up to the D and back, like rock it back and forth, or down a half step. Or a combination of those. So like this. C, D, C, B, C. 
that's like a classic melodic device. You'll notice this device in like great American songbook standards and things like that. This idea that you can go up a diatonic tone uh, and rock it back and forth or down a half step and rock it back and forth uh, or a combination of those things. You can use that to your advantage for these inside movers, right? So you can play any voicing you like and take one of the inside notes and just kind of rock it back and forth, either up a diatonic tone or down a half step and back. And you're going to hear that sound that I think you're going for. Awesome. You could rock it like we're rocking these open studio t-shirts. What? What? Come on now. We rocking it. Got, got <laughs> it underneath awesome. my sweater. Promise. Promise. <laughs> All right. We're, we're, these are great. Let's, let's try to fly through because we got so many great questions. I'll just cue up another one. Efficient techniques uh, to learn and memorize transcriptions. Okay. So we're always talking about learning solos. Um, now, I'm going to take your question apart a little bit and try to give an answer. Memorize transcriptions. We don't want to memorize transcriptions. We want to learn solos. And that's it's a slight little thing, but um, but if you get it into your mind a little twisted when you start, it can be more difficult. So if you think about learning a solo, the most important thing is that you in that you internalize that solo before you even attack it at your instrument, actually. So you're listening to it so much. And you know, we always talk about this is the actually the most efficient way to learn a solo. Um Everybody wants to jump right to their instrument and be like, what, what, what is she playing on that? What is he playing? You know, but the thing is you should be able to sing along to the solo, the entire solo, like while you're doing something else, you should know it that well. And then you'll be able to much more efficiently learn the solo. Um, and so it takes a little bit more time, but what it is, is pick a solo that you're already passionate about, that you know so well, it's already kind of in your ears. You know, don't just hear something and be like, wow, I want to learn that Brad Melda solo that I just heard just now. No, take a few days, a few weeks, however long it is of really attentive listening so that you have it, that you've already learned it in terms of your ears. Now you just have to learn it on your instrument. And then that gets you out of having to memorize a transcription. Now you can transcribe it or not, but that's the most efficient technique that I know of to learn it. Also, once you have it, okay, so it's not as easy as just knowing it and sing along, then you learn it. Yeah, then you're like, wait, what's parts coming next? That'll help, but it won't solve everything. Then you can think about, you know, practicing where you're where you're getting the certain sections. Don't learn it measure by le- measure or line, staff, staff by staff. Learn it phrase by phrase, chorus by chorus, however it's the actual solo is constructed as opposed to how you're trying to box it in. Don't box me in, bro. And so, hey, I'm a solo. Don't box me in. But the idea is that um, once you have it learned every day, I mean, this is a multi-day, if not multi-week process, you're spending time at the end of your transcription, your solo learning process, playing along with the solo. Like if you've learned two choruses so far, play it along. And and we'll talk about like having headphones on where it's a little bit louder than you. So you can really be kind of dominated by the style and the groove and stuff. So then you're getting further inside the solo. You're finding the parts that you know and the parts that you don't know. You're not having to worry about memorizing it measure by measure. You're just learning the phrases, you know. And then the next day, come back and go right to, you would talk about it since you asked about efficiency. I'm going to give you efficient. Go right to the part that you couldn't do the day before. Don't go back and play all the part that you know, because that's just going to be further solidifying that, but not taking you, it's just going to be inefficient. So jump right to that next phrase that you need to and have a goal of learning that and maybe the next one that day. Yeah, I love it. This is something that was was drilled into me too, as far as like the first thing you should do when you learn a solo, not transcribe it, right? Not write it out, but be able to sing it. And once you can sing it, the rest of it's fairly easy. 
right? Because you don't even need to be like listening so closely anymore as you try to figure out what it is. You can sing it. It's right there in right. you. You know, you already have it. So I think that's the, the main key. Yeah. And so, I think the beauty of that too is that you'll find that, and you might think, well, I'm not trying to learn how to sing this all. I'm trying to learn how to play it. Yeah, we get it. But that'll give you the confidence as you go in to learn it. If you can sing along to the whole solo that you know it, you know what I mean? That's actually the hard part. And that's, and, and this is going to seem counterintuitive because at first it's like, oh, there's a total breakdown to try to find the notes. But that's the ear training part. As your ears get better, as you get to know that style, that'll come quicker. But you actually know the solo when you can sing along with it. So that should give you some good confidence as you go in and start to translate it to your instrument. Super true. Yeah. Uh, so Indang01 asks, how do you take practice exercises like drop two and scales and incorporate them into playing actual standards. Well, the first way to do both of those things, or really any exercise you're doing, is to start <clears throat> with the melody. Uh, start by improvising off of the melody, and whatever you've been working on, if that's a drop two exercise, pick a tune you know really well. See if you can play the melody drop two, first and foremost. And then start improvising around that melody, still using the drop two, the same exercise you were doing, the same concept, but using that melody as your jumping off point, right? And then maybe start bringing in some of the concepts of the exercise you were doing, whether that was like, you know, broken thirds or something, whatever, whatever you were working on, bring that into that concept of the melody and then you're golden. Then it's always going to sound really good. You're going to get a lot more ideas too about where you can take things melodically because any device like this, whether it's a scale or a, a drop two thing, those are all melodic devices that we need to... Uh, work through actually, you know, playing melodies with. Uh, so I would start with the melody. Yep, I like that. Okay, we got uh, another good one from Laze. I'm always screwing up his name, but I'm always having fun with this. So what can I do? Oh, I lost it now. But it was basically about fingering. What's the efficient way, a, a ways to learn fingering, to practice fingering? And uh, I would just say that scales and arpeggios are the most important uh, conduit for implementing really uh, really effective fingering as a pianist. Uh, and I'm assuming we're, we're, you know, we're talking about piano. This applies to some other instruments as well, but you know, the technical challenges that we're faced as pianists in any type of music, fingering is such an outsized part of that, especially when you start to think about fingering as having the possibility of, of, of really affecting how we phrase, how we put groove and vibe and feeling and telling our story on the piano, like how important that is. We don't have embouchure to work on. We, you know, we don't have, um, you know, well, we, we do have some situations with our feet, with the pedal. I was going to say like, like a drummer, but not that kind of thing. So like, but fingering on the piano is so important because we have such a range and we've got two hands that we want to use as much as possible when we want to use it. So a lot of times people are thinking about, okay, fingering is, is about for things that you work out. Everything else is a free for all. Yes, that's true. But we want that free for all when we're improvising to, uh, to, for us to be able to kind of automatically go to eventually 
the most efficient fingering to be able to play something super musical. Like people sometimes think about fingering is only important for stuff that's fast. So they're like, okay, I want to be able to play fast lines. So I have to work out fingerings on fast lines. No, you need to work out fingerings for everything that you play and then let that develop into it becoming automatic and not working out your playing based upon your fingerings, but the other way around. But so that you can so that you can control the instrument and make lines and chords and all these things that we want to do sound the way that you want them to sound. And I found that, you know, it's been a while, but not long enough ago when I started like really adjusting my mindset to be like, OK, fingering is about you know, that element of piano technique that I can bring out the sound that I want, as opposed to just fingering is about playing arpeggios and scales fast, that things started to really take off for me. So it's just scales and arpeggios is where we can start to work those things out because those are kind of the basic building blocks of the things that we're going to eventually play and put together with our lines, especially. And don't you feel like too, there's like a part of this that's really connected to, all right, once we're on the right, quote unquote, right finger, what are we doing with it? You know, there's, yeah. there's so like, I see so many players who have no idea how to bring out a good sound on third, fourth or fifth finger. I was actually, yeah. I have your Phillips exercises here, Peter. And there's like, Give a it back. I will, I will eventually. There's a sheet in there from what I assume was your old piano teacher with all this like amazing technical advice about circles you know, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The That's in there? Yeah. So, like, I, I actually did some guided practice sessions with some of our open stu studio students just going up the... Because I used to do this, too. Going up the fingers and making those circles clockwise, counterclockwise, and really trying to shape the movement. And then also thinking about bringing the, the, the sound out from the bottom of the keyboard, like coaxing it up, you know? Those kind of yeah. thought exercises and visualizations... Those can make a huge difference in the sound that we get out of the piano. You watch great classical pianists who obviously have some of the best technique in the world, and they're really, I mean, it's just a beautiful, fluid motion that they're getting. Yeah. It's not just about, like, making sure this finger, like, if you get the right fingering going and then you, and you just, like, throw your hand at the keyboard and there's no, there's no fluid movement with the finger, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's going to sound terrible no matter what. Like, the, yeah. you got to have... The, the 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 appropriate uh sound first and then you yeah. know the fingering should just be sort of an ease of getting your hand in the right position for a musical purpose absolutely so and you know from that concept we would say that you know really fingering is about getting you uh you know leading the horse to the well you still have to execute with each finger as you get there but what we find with really good and efficient fingerings are that you, then you're in that position to be able to do the things with your fingers, especially as you're going faster or whatever. But that's why the fingering is still so important on ballads and stuff where you're exposed and sound and touch and shaping a line is even more pressing in a way because you have such control over how things sound and, and everything's slowed down so everything's exposed, you know. So fingering, vitally important at all tempos. Cool. Cool.